Generation Church, based in the beautiful Rex Theater in the heart of downtown Pensacola, Florida. Our hope is that today's teaching will encourage and equip you to be firm in faith, to fulfill the call of God in your life, and to finish well. Grab your Bible, open up your notes app, and let's dive in. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for he, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced and exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Blake. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Let's try that one more time. We're back in church. How's everybody doing this morning? Come on. I hope you had a good full holiday of Thanksgiving, eating all the food, probably eating, making uh, sandwiches out of all the leftovers now. Um, uh, I've only done that once. Sounds kind of disgusting thinking about it, but uh, glad you're here joining us this morning. Um, It's just such a fun time on Thanksgiving, spending time with family. Then you got football and then Uh, If you're a football fan specifically for a certain team, you probably had a little bit of a heart attack and sadness and then another heart attack uh, yesterday, but we're here. Um, And so we're going to dig into God's word as we jump into part two of In Plain Sight. Um, Before we do that, uh, I felt uh, in preparation to this just to encourage you as we go into this Christmas season, um, maybe some of you have already set up your Christmas tree. Ours is up. Friday when we were like emptying out our attic and, and getting all the Christmas stuff out in my mind the whole time, I'm like it's not even December 1st yet. And uh, so maybe you already got the Christmas music going, but all jokes aside, this is a powerful season. As a believer, as a Christian, uh, this is the starting point for us, is the birth of Christ and why we celebrate it. And so over the next uh, several weeks, as we build up towards Christmas and we're in this series of in plain sight, uh, I just encourage you to dig in. We're going to hear a lot of the same stuff, talking about the prophecies fulfilled, 
of the birth of Christ, but I can promise you uh, after talking with the guys and, and everyone that's going to be communicating uh, that I believe that God has a specific message for each of us that if we adhere to those messages uh, from what God is wanting to say to us that this Christmas could be uh, one of the most powerful seasons that we've had yet. And so before we go any further, I want to jo- go to the Lord in prayer and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, we just ask you to speak to us through your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you here to convict us, to teach us, to give us revelation uh, through your power. Uh, help us to leave here changed, uh, not only leave here changed, but leave here with the power to change the world around us. So we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So if you see on the screen behind me, uh, in plain sight, if you're wondering what that is, uh, it's just a clever way of talking about um, going and looking at prophecies that were fulfilled that we read about in Matthew, and they jump back into the Old Testament, specifically talking about uh, the birth of Christ. And, and what I love about In Plain Sight, I've said this before up here, uh, and I'm pretty sure every time I mention it, Shelby gives me an eye roll, but I have a secret passion of everything true crime, and uh, I sometimes wish I was like a... Um, an FBI agent or something, if I listen to a podcast, my one goal is to try to figure it out before I get to that part of the podcast. If I read a book, that's my one goal is to figure it out before I get to the end. It's kind of like I grew up playing sports. This is my sport now, I guess. Um, But in plain sight, I don't watch it anymore uh, because it does get kind of dark. But there was a show that uh, we watched and it was called In Plain Sight. And basically what that was was it was they would solve crimes or the show was built around crimes where it was solved through video surveillance that what they needed to solve or catch the culprit or whatever it was through a ring doorbell camera or you know street cameras or you know different things it's cameras inside of restaurants or whatever and so it's in plain sight what they needed to know to solve that was in plain sight well this is kind of the same idea that in the Old Testament, you read over and over a bunch of prophecies about Jesus, whether it was what we're talking about, his birth, or things that were going to happen to him, or prophecies all all the way dealing with him returning, that the Old Testament points to Jesus. But there was this evidence. It's in plain sight. You would think specifically for the Jewish community, that they could open up the Old Testament and it's right there in front of them. Things to look for, things to buy into, things to prepare for. But yet in this case, and what we're going to look at, they severely missed it, right? So in our story today, I felt it was important to recap Pastor Ray's message from last week because I think his points from last week sets us up for what we're going to be talking about today. He kicked us off talking about the importance of why Matthew was writing this. Most, if not all, of the prophecies that we're going to be looking at in these series, Matthew talks about. And so he talked about that Jesus is the king, the son of David, that, his, that one of his favorite words he talked about was fulfilled, the word fulfilled, and that his points last week were super powerful. And we, might, we could honestly just pray right now and get to an early lunch. Um, But he said that the miracle birth, the virgin birth, through that we received three gifts. A Savior promised, a Son predicted, and a solution 
provided. How many of you are thankful for those gifts? That because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have a Savior that was promised in the Old Testament, right? It was a promise that a Savior is coming, a Son predicted, and then the solution provided. I think that's what we can hang our hat on, is this solution that was provided, not by our own strength and our own merit, or even that we were so far from deserving it, but a solution that was provided so that we could stand before God and spend eternity with him, the cross. So we have the birth of Jesus, and we have what he did on the cross. In between that is what we can hold on to as believers, but we have to start somewhere. So we're going to look at his birth throughout this series. And so today we're going to look at a prophecy fulfilled that Matthew mentions, that Blake just read in Matthew 2. But he's, all, he's referencing a verse out of Micah 5. And so in Matthew 5, 2, I'll read uh, that specific prophecy. It says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And if we flip over or flip backwards to Micah 5, 2, we read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, strange words, right? Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And what I find interesting and what jumped out to me from this passage specifically is how it ends, right? He is saying and prophesying that one who is to be ruler in Israel, who is coming forth from old, right? He's coming from old. He's not just saying that, that like Jesus has been there, right? Jesus hasn't come yet, but how could he come from old? This was God's plan the entire time. From ancient days, now Jesus, he is prophesying of the birth of Christ. And so what does that mean for us today. In our passage, if you were to go back and read uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 12, you see several characters that are mentioned. But what we want to look at today specifically is Jesus and Herod. We can learn a lot from both of those. We know that the star was revealed to the wise men and the shepherds. Depending on the account you read in the Gospels, you may read about both or one of the other. It is two separate instances. It's not the same one. If you're like me, I was kind of confused by that when I was younger and I first started getting into theology and all that stuff. It's two separate accounts, the wise men, the magi, and then the shepherds. They see the star or the magi see the star. They begin to follow it. You have King Herod and then obviously Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus, right? And so what's interesting is if we jump down to Matthew 3 through 4 or go back up to Matthew 3, through four, it says this. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. I found that really interesting, right? Because all of Jerusalem, the Jews, the people that should have been ready for this, the people that should have and had been reading about this, at this point, they didn't have the New Testament, they only had the Old Testament. So if they read about anything, if they should have known and been expectant for the coming Messiah, the birth of Christ. 
But yet, when they saw the star, instead of being ecstatic and excited and running after that star, that I would hope that all of us would be if we were in that same situation, they were troubled instead. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Did you catch that? The Jews are the ones that are telling King Herod the Old Testament prophecy, but yet they still missed it. But instead, it was three Gentiles that saw the star, and because they listened to God, they pursued the star. Gentiles, people that weren't supposed to see it or weren't supposed to hear it or didn't believe it or have never even heard this prophecy are the ones that followed it and pursued it. You would think that the religious leaders, even being the ones that informed King Herod what the Old Testament said, what does this mean? King Herod wanted to be the king of the Jews, but he wasn't even a Jew. He's from the family line of Esau. But he was so full of pride and so full of evil and wanted to be God and wanted nothing above him, wanted everyone to look at him and worship him and do what he said, that he was willing to create this plan. I must worship God too. Where would it be? But he knew enough to go to the people that should be excited about it to get informed so that he could fulfill his own evil plan, so that he could stay on top. Pride. We'll get to that in a minute. minute. But it's interesting to know that, of anything else, the Jews ignored it, King Herod opposed it, and the Magi pursued it. The Jews ignored it, King Herod opposed it, And the Magi, the Gentiles, were the ones that pursued it. I don't know about you, but there's something powerful about that. Anytime you read about the Gentiles in the New Testament before Paul comes along and starts ministering to them, every account is just so powerful. There's got to be something to that. So maybe you're kind of in the same boat. How many times has has God given you a sign or, or put something in your life and we opposed it or we ignored it or we pursued it? If you're like me, there's probably been many times in your life where God has tried to do something, but you were so concerned with what's going on around you that you saw what God was trying to do as a curse and you ignored it. I saw a video yesterday on Instagram where it was like two trenches or two wells and there was a tree right in the middle of it and in each well there was a person that was stuck. Maybe you've seen it before. And they're both crying out to God. And then a lightning bolt comes, not something that you would associate as a blessing from God, right? When I think of lightning bolts, I think of my parents' house 12 years ago getting struck by lightning and catching on fire. Nothing good about lightning, right? But in this video, a lightning bolt comes, breaks the tree in half, half of it falls in this well, 
and half of it falls in this well. The person on the left starts cursing God, saying, God, you never helped me. And the next person in the right well took the tree, built a ladder, climbed out, and was rescued, and thanked God for the blessing. Where are you at? With the things that God does in your life, how sure are you that the things that are presently in your life aren't there to get you out of whatever it is that you're in? The same with the star. Can you imagine the life that those three magi lived after that? We don't know what happened much after that other than they went a whole different way back to their home nation instead of going back to King Herod. They knew what they had just experienced. If only we could get an inside look at the rest of their life and the message that they told the people that they knew when they got back home. There's a lot to learn from that. So let's get back to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Bethlehem is about six miles wide. It's not very big. The one time that I've been to Israel, I don't really think we were all chomping at the bit to go to Bethlehem, other than knowing that this is where Jesus was born. We wanted to go to the temple. We wanted to go to you know, the Sea of Galilee or the Dead Sea or um, all the, the garden, Golgotha, all this stuff in Jerusalem. But why Bethlehem? And I, I don't think we could say that Mary and Joseph may have not planned to go there. They're traveling. They're trying to get somewhere else. They land in Bethlehem. There's nothing special about Bethlehem. And we know that they inquired about a room, so their plan wasn't to have Jesus, their child, born in a manger. But I want you to think about, if you're planning a vacation, I, I bet the last thing you think about is, well, maybe we can just save money and stay in someone's barn. Or maybe we could go to this city that really offers us nothing. Shelby and I's seven-year anniversary is in April, and we're kind of looking at going somewhere. And I can promise you, every place I've looked at or considered, I try to get the absolute most out of what I feel like I could afford at that place. I'm not reaching out to these places and say, hey, can I stay in your boiler room and save money? Can I stay with all these animals or all this stuff? Like... Come on, but there's this humble beginning of Christ. Maybe they didn't plan to end up in a manger. Maybe they didn't plan to be in Bethlehem, but here they are. Jesus, the king of the Jews. You would think that a king would come, I mentioned lightning, in a flash, in a powerful upbringing, to a throne, but he didn't. He came as a baby, one of the most humble forms of any life out there. We have two kids, and we're getting to Olivia's four, might as well be 13, but Amelia is getting at that age now where she's starting to develop some independence, so you're starting to see things where she's not necessarily relying on us, but you can remember when she's born, she can't do anything without mainly Shelby, right? But that's how our Savior came, as a baby, to rely on Mary and Joseph to raise him, prepare him. He surrendered everything, every heavenly attribute to come here fully human as an infant to be cared for. So if you haven't caught on yet, we're going to talk about humility, a humble beginning, humble humility. Same word. 
But what's interesting in Bethlehem, if you look in the original language, it's translated to house of bread. You've heard that before, right? It's interesting that when you read in John 6, 35, that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. It's kind of cool play, right? That Jesus is born in a place that's not very extravagant, but we know that we will never hunger with Jesus. He is the bread of life. And if you Google humility, the definition is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Now let's push pause there for a second. This isn't saying that humility is equal to being insecure. This doesn't say that humility means that you don't matter. What I think it means is that humility means that you care more about other people's needs than you do your needs. I'll share it with this story. He was here last service, but uh, Rich Holst Connect uh, was nice enough to watch our uh, demon dogs while we were gone on Thanksgiving, and one of our dogs particular has now discovered that she can jump. And twice, in about 48-hour window, this particular one uh, jumped over the fence. The second time, it's pouring down rain. And we're in uh, Louisiana at this point, I think, and I get a phone call from Rich, and he's like, hey, uh, I can't find Piper. And I'm like, great. And uh, he goes, it's also pouring down rain. And so I'm, in my mind, I'm like, well, I guess we're down a dog because I'm not going to ask the guy to go look for this dog in the pouring rain. And he texts me an hour and a half later, uh, walking in the rain with Piper and his belt around its neck. Um, I won't say that joke. Um, but uh, he did that. Not because, surely... Can I be honest? I wouldn't have gone and looked for her, and it's my dog, and if it's pouring down rain, I would have hoped she came back. But that's, like, Rich is one of the most humble guys that I know. He put what he felt like was our needs in getting our dog back way above his needs. He could have got sick. It's two days before Thanksgiving, but here he is walking around our neighborhood trying to find our dog that is Uh, has ups and wants to kill every cat and other animal that is not a dog in our neighborhood. And so humility, putting needs before others, that's what it means to have a modest view of oneself. And Jesus' life, certainly once he started ministry, if you wanted to describe his life and ministry as one word, it was humility. It makes perfect sense that Matthew tells us in chapter 20, verse 28, that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life for a ransom for many. As a ransom for many. What an opposite approach to what you would think would be a savior or a kingdom. You would think, especially by even watching the religious leaders lead their lives, it's, hey, Watch how I can pray. Watch what I can do. There was even an expectation that they would uh, receive something back for them ministering to someone else. But yet for Jesus, he even would perform miracles and tell people not to tell anyone. 
Right? Like, how humble could you be? To perform these miracles, and you would think, like, oh, this is where my popularity starts. This is where my kingdom starts. I just raised this guy from the dead. Come pat me on the back. I just healed this woman. Come bring me some grapes or something. (laughs) Humble, humility. And if, as a Christian... Our sole purpose is for our lives to imitate God, to imitate Christ, to have the mind of Christ, to serve people like Christ. So how do we do that? We have to be humble. And if you're like me, it's really hard to be humble. We want the recognition. We want the pats on the back. We want the words of affirmation. But if we have the wrong attitude and perspective because of that, then we're going to fall every time. That's why the Bible even says that pride comes before the fall. Be Be humble or God will humble you. Some kind of terrifying verses, right? But that Christ came to serve, not to be served, but to serve Others. I think about the account where he is the one that washes his disciples' feet. When you would assume it should be the disciples washing his feet, right? That's certainly what he deserved. So when we were driving around and thinking about this message last week, there was another word that I would always think about when it came to humility. And that is... Humility equals servanthood. I heard a message one time talking to pastors, but this is what we were told. He said, your ministry, so in this case, let's say our lives, should, should never be us bringing people up to us, but us going down to other people. Getting off of the platform. If you're a boss, if you own your own business, your purpose is to go down to your employees And do life with them. Not bring them up to you in this unhealthy, prideful expectation. It's the same for ministry. It's the same for life as a parent. I can't lead my kids, my two girls, or lead my wife if I bring them up to me. I have to get down into their world. I have to humble myself, set aside my needs, and love them and lead them. It's not always the easiest thing in any circumstance. Certainly if you're letting the circumstances in your life, maybe the lack of need that you think you should have, or maybe you're passed over from something else. But what I can tell you is that if we strive to have a humble spirit, what God can do in your life is just unimaginable. Because... Being humble and having a humble spirit is stepping aside and giving God complete control. There's a couple quotes I heard this or saw this week. It says, being humble means recognizing that we're not on earth to see how important we can become, but to see how much difference we can make in the lives of others. Another one was this, and I thought was awesome. It said, humility is royalty without a crown. Humility is royalty without a crown. And I think this quote 
gives you an image of Jesus' life. As the king of the Jews, the only crown he ever wore was painful, a crown of thorns as he hung on the cross. It was never about him, but always about us. And it leads all the way up to his most humble act of sacrificing himself on the cross. Now, I say this all the time, but I can never shake this thought, is that through his humility, he died for me knowing that I might never love him back. That I might choose to stay and remain prideful. I might choose to try to do things my own way, but he still saw me and he sees you as being worth laying down his life for. That's what we have to celebrate this Christmas, this season. But let me challenge you, don't let it just stop at Christmas. This needs to be a daily thing. And so when we chase after this humility spirit and learn how to surrender our lives, it's important to look at both Jesus' life and King Herod's life, like I mentioned. We could even wrap in King Nebuchadnezzar in this. Um, I don't know if you've read through First and Second Kings and most of those books, but it's really hard to read. Every king, except maybe a few, gets it right. It's like the most depressing kingdom biography in Scripture. Every person. This guy's name, did evil on the side of the Lord, was killed. Terrible, right? The reason is pride. Right? What was the reason that some of those kings were exalted and, and ruled for a long time? Humility. Right? King Herod, like we mentioned earlier, wanted to be the king of the Jews, but was so prideful. I'm not really 100% sure what ends up happening to him, but I'm willing to bet that it wasn't good. You think about King Nebuchadnezzar. At his time, the king and ruler of the most powerful kingdom on earth. Especially as, as big, you know, with the Babylonian exile and, and bringing all the Jews in, uh, to Babylonian or Babylonia. Even after the burning, the fiery furnace, where you would think, hey, maybe this is his moment. Maybe this was his sign. But he went right back to his prideful ways. He wanted to be on top. And we get the account of God humbling him and where his whole kingdom turned on him. His whole kingdom. And he's exiled into the wilderness for seven years. But he's restored. Why? He was humbled. It's a challenge, and I don't want to say this to be fearful, but don't give God the opportunity to put something in your life to humble you. When you pursue him and surrender to him daily and live in that humble spirit, you will be exalted. Pride kills, humility exalts. Proverbs 29, 23 in the ESV translation says, One pride will bring, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. In the NLT translation, it says pride ends in humility. While hum- or humility, right? Not that. It does end in humility, but in this case, the pride, pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. Now, I know most of us, all of us, 
doesn't wake up every day and say, man, I really hope I'm humiliated today. I really don't. I'm, I just care too much about myself. Bring on the humiliation. At least I'll still be on top, right? I don't think any of us say that. And I learned this truth through kind of a painful experience, but a long time ago, I was in ministry school, and I had had the opportunity where me and a couple of my classmates worked together to lead this prayer ministry within the youth group of the church that I was in ministry school at. And uh, it was a big church, so it started out seeming really successful, right? Theoretically, and unfortunately, a lot of churches base their success on the number of people that they have. goes the same with youth ministry. Yes, it's important to grow. Yes, the more people you have are hearing the gospel. But I have seen that create so much pride in ministry. And this story is no same example. There was about five of us. When we first got the opportunity to work together in this prayer uh, meeting that we had every Sunday night, we started out with 50 kids. And then a year and a half later, we had 300 kids. And this was just the prayer meeting. It wasn't even the main youth service. And at this time, the youth pastor and our pastor decided and felt like God was leading them to go a different direction and only have a monthly service. So what they decided to do was move our sweetheart, what we called CORE, this prayer service, to Wednesday nights, every other Wednesday that wasn't the, first, or the second Wednesday. And what that meant was that we weren't going to get to lead this ministry anymore, or certainly not like we had been used to the last year and a half. And so what we would do every week, we would have this meeting, uh, and then we would uh, get together and kind of talk about what we were going to do the next week. And this particular night was full of anger and bitterness because we were the ones that grew this to 300 kids. We were the ones that were changing the youth ministry. How dare them take us away from this? And I'm sitting here in this conference room, and I'm thinking in my spirit, this is wrong. But in my flesh, I agreed with what everybody was saying. So I chose not to say anything. And then we get home that night. I don't know how word got out. I mean, surely, I guess, God, unless they had a speaker in this room or something. We get a text message from our youth pastor. And he's like, hey, I need y'all to come back up here. And by this time, it's like 930 at night. And if you've ever been to ministry school, uh, you're on the clock 24-7. And uh, we show up, and you can just see on his face that he was not really happy. And rightfully so. Uh, in the whole expression of that he ripped us a new one, um, he humbled us big time. And he was absolutely right. Because at some point we had lost sight of why we were even here in the first place. We probably could have said, at least for some of us, that we cared more that there were 300 people coming than there were 300 young kids passionately chasing and pursuing after the Spirit of God. It had completely changed for us. And it took a long time for me to really get over that moment. I even sat in uh, the youth pastor's office uh, later that week and was just like, man, like I really messed up. And it was really challenging, but what I learned is that whether we want it to or not, humility will come. 
it'll be either be painful or it'll be powerful, right? And so as we move into kind of this practical side, I don't want to lose sight of what happened in Bethlehem. We're going to come back to that in a second. But it's important to understand that if we are to live like Jesus and to be like Jesus, we have to be humble. And so it's important to understand perhaps what humility can and will do in my life and in your life. And so number one that's there in your notes is that humility births true trust and confidence. I think to some level, we all have some kind of trust issue that's based off of some kind of circumstance we have. Maybe it's not such a good home life, or maybe it's uh, something that's happened to us that will hurt or deplete the trust that we have. And I personally don't think, whether it's in a relationship or in anything else, if you don't have trust, you can't have confidence, whether it's in yourself or in someone else. So it's important to know that humility allows you to step out of your own way so that really that trust and confidence isn't just in yourself, but it's mainly in the powerful and the power of God working through you or trying to work through you. It helps us step out of the way. So we have the opportunity to look outside of our weakness and to look outside of the mistakes that we feel like are holding us back or we allow to hold us back step out of the way and realize that we too can live in the encouragement that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then I added verse 10 to it. It said, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. If we can trust that, that's the confidence that I want. Because if I have a prideful spirit, I can't experience that. I might think I can, but it's going to be false trust and false confidence that will go away as soon as something else happens to us. But what's interesting about this portion of scripture that right above this is when Paul is talking about the thorn in his flesh. And Paul was as humble as they come as well, right? All the stuff he was able to overcome for the sake of the gospel was because he had a humble spirit. And it wasn't about him. It was about everyone else. I would love to be able to say that I'm content in my weakness, And I'll be honest, I have a hard time saying that. (laughs) But when we know that when we have true trust and confidence in God, that it's God's strength that is working through us, not our own strength. That's something to be thankful for. Second thing is that humility prepares our hearts to be used by God. I'm sure everybody in here would raise their hand and say, I would love to be used by God. I would love that every day of my life, God use me in a powerful way. And he can. But we have to humble ourselves and step out of our own way so that he can do what he wants to do. If you want the power of God to work through your life, we have to get out of our own way. And point one and point two is like a continuous cycle. 
If you're going to want to have a prepared heart to be used by God, you have to have true trust and true confidence in God, and that can only come from humility. Jesus gave us that perfect example. Paul gave us that perfect example. Because, I mean, think about Paul. He received the same beating Jesus did more than once. He was left for dead more than once, but yet he got right back up and went right back to the same thing. How many times did the disciples get arrested for talking about Jesus, get released, and basically start talking about Jesus again on the other side of the jail? They were humble. They had a calling. They wanted to see that happen. It can only happen from being humble. Proverbs 22.4, I think we could all buy into this verse, says that the reward of humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. I want that. As much as I want that in my life right now, what I think that's pointing to is eternity. True riches... True honor and true life is standing next to Jesus in eternity because of what he did on the cross. And it starts with surrender. And as the band comes up and we get ready to close, I want to come back to this idea of Bethlehem, right? We know that, like we mentioned at the beginning, Bethlehem wasn't a city to be desired, I guess. It wasn't Ephesus. It wasn't like this huge port city where people from all over the world were coming to get rich and dabble in all these world, worldly desires. It was just Bethlehem. But when you think about the beginning of Jesus' life, this humble beginning, maybe you find yourself in this position in your life where you feel like there's not much to your life. Maybe you're held down by the mistakes that you made or the sin in your life currently. Or maybe the lack of blessing you feel like hasn't come to you yet. Maybe you look at people in your life that's been given opportunities over you that you felt like you deserved. Or maybe you were given that opportunity and you felt like you squandered it away. Maybe you don't have the status economically or popularity. Can I tell you something? Take that as a blessing. Most people with probably the popularity that you want, the status that you desire, fall flat on their face at some point because they were prideful. But we have, to echo Paul's words again, Philippians 1, 6, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that God is working through you. And we could take that whatever humble beginning we feel like we have, whatever issue we feel like going on in our life, God will use that to bring breakthrough to someone else. And if we can surrender our pride and humble ourselves, we are giving God complete control and room 
to do through us what only he can do, which in turn produces us as who he called us to be. And so as we pray this morning, I want to pray for, for two groups of people. And maybe you're, let's go ahead and stand to our feet and we'll get ready to worship. Maybe you're in here and you've known God, but you've allowed circumstance and you've allowed all this stuff to kind of creep into your life. Maybe a little bit of pride. Maybe pride has so many faces. It's not just perhaps the pride that King Herod had or King Nebuchadnezzar had. But the simple act of not surrendering to God is a form of pride. There's a big difference between pride and confidence. And if we have confidence in God, we can't have pride. So maybe you do know Christ. Maybe you've lived for him for a long time, but you, we just, you just need to get back to complete surrender to him. I'm going to pray, but I just want you to pray along with me right there at your seat. I'm not going to ask you to come down here to the front and raise your hand. But Father, if there is anyone in here that, that needs to come back to you, Lord, I pray that you just minister to their heart. That they surrender to you. Just say something like, God, I, I surrender my heart to you. I, I repent. I ask you to take control of my life again. Help me to stay humble. And maybe some of you are in here that's never met Jesus for the first time. But I can promise you this, Jesus sees you. He sees what you're going through. And with him, you can make it through anything. That it is God's strength that is perfected in your weakness. And so, Father, I pray for anyone in here that doesn't know you and they feel that nudge to embrace your love, experience your grace, and to jump into that relationship with you, God, I just pray right now that it's so much more than just a prayer, that it's a heart change, it's a step of obedience and a life of surrender. But if you make that decision today, just ask God to cleanse your heart, to come into your heart, repent of your sins, and ask God to be the Lord and Savior of your life. And Father, as we go into worship right now, we give you this time. We thank you for what you did on the cross. And as we go into this season, a season that's full of light, but is blinded by so much darkness and depression, where we stake claim right now for your spirit to move through this city, through this church, whether they're watching online right now or in this room, God, that you are in their hearts, that your spirit has invaded their minds. And that when we leave here today, God, not only is our hearts changed, but we begin to change the hearts of those around us because it's you that are working through us. And we thank you so much for what you did on the cross. And as we worship you right now, we come to you with gratitude. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for hanging out with us at Generation. You can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Generation Pensacola or go to the website at generationpensacola.com and from wherever you download your podcasts. If today's teaching impacted you, we'd love to hear about it. So please drop us a note.